Welcome to Zero Knowledge, a podcast where we explore the latest in blockchain technology and the decentralized web. The show is hosted by me, Anna. And me, Frederick. In this episode, Anna sits down with Hudson from the Ethereum Foundation to talk about governance and the EIP process. So today I'm sitting with Hudson Jameson uh, from the Ethereum Foundation. Hi, Hudson. Hi, Anna. <laughs> How's it going? It's going pretty well. Cool. Um, why don't we start off like we always do with a quick intro to yourself. Maybe give us a little bit of a background on how you got into the space. Sure. So I've been involved in cryptocurrency and blockchain technology since about 2011. I started mining in college and just jumping into the space while I was doing my computer science degree. Um, I was involved in Bitcoin and then Darkcoin, which turned into Dash, and then fell in love with Ethereum after I read the white paper and looked at the pre-sale and got involved in the community early on. Right now, I work for the Ethereum Foundation, doing DevOps work, running the core developer calls and doing some security work as well. So just kind of across the spectrum. You're already a fan of Ethereum, but how did you actually get into the organization? Like how did that how did that work? So I was already pretty obsessed with Ethereum right before it launched. And then I started posting to Reddit more, getting my name out there a little bit, uh, not necessarily even on purpose, just because I wanted to participate. And so I started, you know, there wasn't as many people back then. So the voices who did speak up were kind of well known. During DevCon 2, I got some money together to fly myself to London to participate. And when I got there, they were a little bit short on volunteers. So I kind of threw myself in and ran around helping with timekeeping, working the desk for badges, working the desk for t-shirts and getting to meet everybody. And uh, the executive director at the time, Ming Chan, uh, got to know me pretty well and uh, offered me a job after that. So um, I left my banking world and went to work for the Ethereum Foundation uh, in mid-2016. You were in the banking world before. What were you doing there? So I was a software developer at USAA, which is a banking and insurance company for the military in the U.S. I worked on some old mainframe stuff for a little bit, and then um, I actually ran their blockchain program for about a year and a half before I left. So they were actually one of the earlier banks to look at the, into blockchain around 2015. Oh, so you really were like, you're in kind of like old school tech, but you were still trying to push some innovation into it. Oh, yeah. I, they, they, I'm sure they got tired of me talking about blockchain after the hundredth <laughs> time, but they finally put me into an innovation lab where I could kind of grow and actually work on what I wanted to work on. So you've been excited about blockchain for a long time, but would you say like over the last few years, has it gotten more or less? Like where are you at right now in your kind of excitement cycle for the topic? I, I think I'm more excited than ever. I definitely go through phases of burnout just because there's so much going on in the ecosystem and there's so much to do and so much to participate in. So that's kind of the difference between years ago and today. There's just a lot more going on, but the excitement level and the possibilities are still really grand and and I think that we're on a good trajectory to do something really, really awesome. Even if things like Ethereum don't pan out in the end, the technology that's being built around it is going to hold out for a while. Do you think you could have, like, when you think back to that time when you were reading the white paper and or, or sort of any of these projects that have now kind of come to fruition since, since then... Like, did you think that they would turn out this way or did they really take a very different direction? I never predicted the ICO boom. That took me by surprise for sure. That was one of the main things I would say that took me by surprise. But when I read the white paper, I thought it was entirely possible to put programs on a Turing complete virtual machine on a blockchain. But I didn't know if it was actually going to take off or not. I, I was never, I was never like super skeptical. I would say, but I thought it would be more kind of like a like a hobby project for the next few years. I didn't think it would take off in the way it did over the course of three years to where it is today, being a huge cryptocurrency and getting mainstream attention from CNBC and other platforms. And I even got contacted earlier by Bloomberg, and they were like, "We want to talk about the Core Dev meeting call today." And I was like, "That's really boring." Why 
why are you wanting to talk to me about that? So uh, stuff like that always surprises me. Wow. I mean, this is... This actually doesn't have so much to do with the tech. This has to do with the fact that, like, there's this giant hype cycle and, I mean, mainstream publications and things you never would have expected are starting to look towards this community. Speaking of that, like, how do you even define the community right now? How do you define the Ethereum community? So there's actually a short story about defining the community. There was a unconference called EIP Zero, where we had different topics that we could pick out of a pile of topics that were suggested by the participants of the unconference. And one of them was, let's talk about the community and define it. And we spent an hour sitting there going back and forth about like, well, here's the stakeholders. Well, those aren't real stakeholders. There's the miners and then there's, you know, the speculators. And we went all around. And at the end of the day, we said, we can't define the community. It's very nebulous. Um, if, <laughs> if I were to... <laughs> it's basically like we failed. But if I were to really, really try to, I would say it's people who believe in Ethereum one way or another that it's going to succeed in making the money, making the world better, doing something, uh, doing a net positive for the world. Who is not part of the community? Uh, Bitcoin maximalist. <laughs> okay. I mean, would you say something like, I don't know, these other projects, these other blockchains that are coming out? Something like Definity. Is that still, would you still consider them in the Ethereum community? Are they cousins? Like, how would you kind of put them in that ecosystem? Yeah. So there are projects like um, IPFS and Definity and Rchain that are kind of Ethereum adjacent or like our best friends. So people like Juan, who created IPFS, he was actually in attendance at DevCon Zero talking about his ideas, and he's talked at every subsequent DevCon. Ethereum and IPFS integrate different underlying protocols with each other, like libp2p and collaborate. With Definity, we've had Dominic speak at DevCon previously, and a lot of the research behind their proof of stake has... um been done alongside the explorations around Casper and Ethereum's proof-of-stake protocol. So in that sense, we get along pretty well. So we love projects that push the decentralized future forward, and I don't think we're going to uh, reject anybody who really wants to help in that goal, even if it's not directly Ethereum-related. I also noticed that there's a lot of sharing of kind of innovation. Like, I think it was Definity that introduced the random beacon, which is the name of the fun TV show thing that I'm doing with Evan. But I think that first, the first time it was seen random beacon, like kind of put in that way, I believe was in the Definity white paper, but now you see it popping up in a lot of the other protocols. Have you noticed a lot of that? Like, is there a lot of sharing between the cousins? Or the best friends? Between the best friends, there is a lot of innovative sharing of, of stuff. I think the Random Beacon's a really good example of that. There is a lot of stuff on formal verification that's shared between even some researchers that do some stuff on Ethereum Classic and Ethereum, surprisingly, because there's a lot of working with the EVM together and dealing with a similar protocol. I think z like zero knowledge topics also seem to span across a lot of the ecosystems. That's what I've sort of been been touting. It's like if you want to if you want to research something that is sort of apolitical, you can pick zero knowledge because almost every project has some sort of implementation they're playing with it and the the researchers tend to all know each other and get together and like love sharing information uh, even if they're from like competing projects. Yeah, one of the Ethereum's bestest friends is actually Zcash. And one of my favorite collaborations was a collaboration between the Ethereum Foundation C++ team and the uh, Zcash Electric Coin Company team, where they implemented different crypto primitives on the Ethereum blockchain using opcodes in order to accomplish the facilitation of ZK snarks on Ethereum, which is still kind of in its early phases because it's hard to do, but it's really cool that we collaborated to um, actually get that done. Are you a developer at Ethereum? Would you consider yourself like a core dev? I would not consider myself a developer. I would consider myself a facilitator and someone who deals with cross-developer and cross-client and ecosystem communication. So I kind of do a lot of 
translating between like technical topics and non-technical topics because of my software development background, but I'm currently not coding as any part of my job besides some basic scripting for setting up servers and things like that. So you wouldn't consider yourself a core dev then necessarily? I hang out with them so much and I'm called a core dev enough that I don't correct people, but I do not consider myself a core dev because I don't touch the code. So maybe that's the wrong, like often people will refer to core devs, but I think what they mean is like core team. Yep, that's that's exactly right. Basically, the people working on the protocol or facilitating the people working on the protocol would be the core team. So like client developers, dev P2P developers, like client implementers, things like that. How many people do you think are core devs in the Ethereum ecosystem? So sometimes people come and go, I would say. So in the grand scheme of the last three years, there's probably been about 150 people who have come in and then leave to do their own projects so they don't participate anymore. Currently, there's probably around 50 to 75 people who I would consider core developers who are active in some kind of core protocol project in the ecosystem, whether it be with Ethereum J, Parity, Geth, Aleth, which is the new name for the C++ client, or any of the other core components. Would you say that like core devs tend to be the client developers or... Could they be doing something else? Like, would you consider the sharding team core devs? Oh, yeah. So th- I usually separate it by core devs and researchers, um, okay. mainly because researchers, although they do touch code and they do some implementation sometime, they focus mainly on research and a lot of theoretical stuff that isn't necessarily implemented. So that's how I divide it. If you were to actually lump in researchers and if you were to lump in uh, kind of the hybrid researchers, sometimes grantees who do research and development, you're going to be getting into the hundreds at that point easily. Because mm-hmm. our research team, at least at the foundation, and not including other ones like the people at Status and Prismatic Labs, is at least 20 to 30 people deep. When you're trying to you know, make decisions or get a bunch of people together to make decisions, you sort of have to know who they are, I guess, and like who should be there, um, who needs to be there. Do you have actually that at all in your mind? It's like, this is the core devs that like have to weigh in. Then there's some core devs that would be cool if they weigh in. And then there's some like devs that you don't need to have their input. Do you have that sort of hierarchy? I wouldn't say it's defined exactly like you just explained, but there is a hierarchy of type of person rather than specific people. So at minimum, I like to have people from Geth and Parity and Ethereum J because they make up so much of the network. And then it's also great to have people from Mana and Trinity and Ethereum JS and other smaller clients that still do a lot to implement things on the network. And really, at the end of the day, we're all implementing the same specification, or trying to at least. So, you know, we try to have equal representation from each client's input. And uh, some voices are louder than others, and that's always going to happen in these kind of meetings. But I definitely like to see a good representation from each client team, and that's how I kind of view it. So let's talk about this meeting that we're describing. This meeting that is happening every two weeks? Two weeks on Friday. It's the core dev call. Yes. Or core dev meeting. Yeah, it's the, well, so traditionally, it kind of has a history. So traditionally, it was called the all core devs meeting, and we still call it that sometimes because that's just what the Gitter chat room name is from when George Hallam was originally doing the meetings. When the meetings were originally happening way back about two years ago or so, there were very, very, very few core developers, and all of them worked at the Ethereum Foundation. So there'd be like Jeffrey Vilke, Gavin Wood, Martin Beasy, and like maybe just Gustav Simonson and a handful handful of other people, maybe like less than 15 people total would participate and George Hallam would run the whole show. After George left, I took over and I started recording and live streaming the calls. Um, And at first it wasn't a lot of, you know, developers. And then it kind of grew and grew to where recently when we actually included outside participants, we had a call with 30 people. So that was very intense to moderate. It's like herding cats. But okay, just a regular run in the mill core dev call. What is it? What is a core dev call? The core dev call has a few purposes. Just to lay the groundwork, it's a very technical call. We don't like discussing controversial topics or things that are community-driven standards like ERCs. So like, um, since the new rules were enacted that I kind of set up for this, ERC-20 would, for example, not be considered because that's something the community can decide on, and it doesn't require a core protocol change. 
So the participants of the meeting do core protocol changes and are responsible for like the underlying, you know, base layer, layer one of the Ethereum network. Those are the people who attend the meetings. What we try to accomplish is work through the Ethereum improvement proposals or EIPs that are out there that want to get discussed by the core devs that are consensus layer issues. We plan, uh, discuss, and implement hard forks using those meetings. And we also uh, keep up with the client teams, the research teams, and the testing team to see where they are as far as their major milestones, uh, if they need any help from any of the other teams or cross uh cross-client communication, because uh, a lot of the time there's, you know, maybe Parity's implementing something and they're like, you know, I implemented it one way, but Geth implemented it another. Let's get together and make sure we're implementing this the same way. And that's prevented a lot of um, bad situations just because there's all of this cooperation and collaboration between the core devs. So you just mentioned the EIPs, yes. the Ethereum Improvement Proposals. proposals. Mm-hmm. Um, let's define those. We've, I mean, I think we've mentioned them at times during the podcast, like in previous episodes, just sort of threw out a EIP and a number, but I think it would be really helpful for our audience to hear exactly what that is and maybe where they live. Sure. So um, an Ethereum improvement proposal is a formal written document that outlines a change to the Ethereum network, generally a technical change or a standard or community action. So, for instance, something that's a technical change to the consensus layer of Ethereum might be, I want to add something that lets you do ZK-SNARKs on Ethereum. So we had about three EIPs that came together to make it so that you could do ZK-SNARKs on Ethereum. We've had other ones that say, we want to make the network layer more secure and take up less bandwidth by doing snappy compression from Google, I think. And it sounds really neat and fun. And one of the Geth developers uh, brought the EIP up and everyone agreed on it. So we decided to implement it. So that's the kind of called the consensus or core level EIPs. And then there's ERCs. I think it's a misnomer technically because it's kind of like Ethereum request for comment, but that's not really what it is at all. It's basically a community standard. So I could say, I want to make ERC721 is a non-fungible token like CryptoKitties. I want to make something like a collectible card game, but on Ethereum and have a standard so that I can trade my collectible cards across anyone else who creates a collectible of any kind. So my collectible card could be traded for a collectible kitty, etc. So they define the layout of the Solidity smart contract and everything that's required for someone to duplicate it. And then they write up that specification. They debate it over time. And then once the community agrees that it's mature enough, we do something called last call. Last call is a two-week period where people can give their final feedback on the ERC and decide if it is ready to be pushed out or if there's anything that's kind of a deal breaker or needs to be decided on before it's in the final state. We don't have that for the core core EIPs right now, but we may change it so that we do. It's funny because, like, I think most people will have heard of ERC twenty. That's like probably the most famous. But it's funny. All that is is a standard. All that is is a standard, and there's um, dozens of ERCs for token standards, like ERC twenty, all the way up to um, ways that you're going to define how you sign a message for a hardware wallet, which is just basically. Uh, proving who you are using your wallet like a fingerprint to say, this is who I am. Um, this people made a standard for that so that all the hardware wallet implementers and all the software projects like MyEtherWallet, uh, MyCrypto, and MetaMask uh, could all get together and have the same signing protocol across all their platforms. So it's about making cohesion of the Ethereum um, ecosystem amongst the technical uh, specifications. Let's go back to EIPs then. So people, like, can anyone submit an EIP? Anyone can submit an EIP. It's then automatically placed into draft status and sits in draft status until uh, it is either accepted or rejected. There's some other states in between that are just kind of technicalities at that point. Um, And then there's also a final state for certain EIPs. It's a little bit of a process. It's actually uh, based on the Bitcoin improvement proposals. 
which is then based on the Python improvement proposals, which is based on um, the idea of having specifications defined such as the IETF, um, such as what the IETF does. And so the journey of an EIP would be someone, either a core dev or somebody else, just proposes something. It goes through some sort of proposal, like some sort of uh, evaluation process. It will come out at the other end, either accepted or rejected. But at what point do you talk about it in the meeting? Is it already, has it already gone through the process before you talk about it? Or is it, do you talk about it in that meeting in order to push it through or not? So the EIPs and ERCs all live on GitHub. And so Mm -hmm. GitHub has an interface where you can write comments on the technical documents that are posted. So the discussion for EIPs, uh, usually starts inside of GitHub using the comments in there. That's where the idea is re, uh, refined and things are improved on it. And then once it's mature enough, it comes to the core developer meeting to be discussed as long as it's a, you know, core EIP and not an ERC or something else. So they are uh, come to the core dev meeting. And after they're in the core dev meeting, they're either accepted or rejected. Um, and sometimes they're slated for hard forks or they are just kind of put to the side and we're like, we don't need that right now, or this would take up too much time or is too hard to implement. So let's set this to the side. And that's the deferred state that a lot of the IPs get put in uh, for ones that are really good ideas, but for one reason or another, uh, aren't going to move forward at that moment. And so EIPs can only be implemented in a hard fork. Not necessarily. Um, yeah, EIPs are just changing something at the protocol layer. Um, some protocol layer changes are breaking changes, which means it would break the network if we put this in without doing a hard fork. Um, and some of them are uh, things like I mentioned snappy compression, which are at the network layer, which is just uh, changing the way that the data is sent through the pipes of Ethereum. So I think I think I understand now. I mean, I think basically the EIP process is quite clear. You're ha- holding a core dev call every two weeks. This is part of the facilitation that you've been speaking about. This is this is one of the things that I guess you're doing where it's like you bring people together to have conversations, to go through the EIPs. Do you only talk about EIPs or do you also talk about other stuff? We talk about uh, client updates and research updates, uh, testing updates, and then we get into the EIP discussion where people add things to the agenda. Like, I want to talk about EIP 1278, which is an EIP I either want to champion that someone else wrote or I created myself. Uh, Once we get done talking about EIPs, that's pretty much the end of the meeting unless someone has um, any kind of special announcements to make or anything else that's applicable to the technical core level protocol uh, of Ethereum. Do you talk about like, do you talk about security or like, do you talk about any sort of maybe more pressing, like a, like a new event or something that's come up? If there was a consensus issue, if, if anything like happened, does that also come up like news kind of? Yes, we do talk about um, security issues and incidents when they happen. Um, there's been a few times, one of the most famous times, I guess, was the Shanghai attacks, where someone uh, filled the blockchain with a bunch of junk so that the clients would crash. And that took a while to both um, completely, you know, identify, it didn't take a while to identify the problem, I should say, it took a while to completely clean up the mess that that caused. So let's talk about that big meeting you just described, with 30 people on the call. How did that come to be? Like, let's give a little bit of background on this. And also, let us I want to hear a little bit about how that kind of went down. Sure. So we're having a hard fork. We're calling it Constantinople. And it's coming up, um, hopefully, in October, right before DevCon. And part of that uh, hard fork includes a number of EIPs, most of them uncontroversial and just decided in core dev calls. But there were a few EIPs that were being debated um, by the community and by the core devs that involved an issuance reduction for block rewards. Um, whenever a miner mines a block in Ethereum, they get a reward of 3 Ether. That reward used to be 5 Ether, but last year we uh, cut that reward down. 
And so this year, uh, due to the fact that some people think we're paying too much for miners securing the network, we wanted to cut down the reward even more from 3 Ether to something lower like 2 Ether or 1 Ether. At least that's what the community maybe wanted. We couldn't get a clear signal on that. Um, last year, we didn't include miners enough in that conversation. So this year, I tried to communicate with as many miners as I could find and say, hey, this is being discussed. We're going to maybe cut the reward down again. What do you think about that? We're kind of, you know, that's, you know, you're not going to make as much money, but we're technically overpaying for it, some people think. Uh, so what are, what are your opinions? And obviously, they were against it. They thought it would lessen the security of the network. And there were people from the community who said it won't lessen security. We just need to be careful about it. And we're overpaying for it. So because there was all this um, disagreement with how much to reduce it, if we were going to reduce it at all, we decided to get um, miners and people from the community on the core dev call, which is a very rare occurrence to get non-core developers on a core dev call. So we had representation from at least three or four miners and then three or four community members plus a lot of core developers and other people um and so they all got on the call and i moderated a 30-person call where they went back and forth on their pros and cons for each of their arguments and at the end of the call we didn't come to a decision um we spent a lot of the time hearing the arguments and so someone um, suggested that we wait a week have the community continue to duke it out online on Reddit and Twitter, etc., and then come back in a week, and the core developers just decide what the community decide what they think the community wants and implement that in code. So what we did is we we did that. We waited a week, and then um, we had a meeting that had about fourteen core developers in it. Um, that we went back and forth on the. Um, not even the arguments of the debate necessarily, but the arguments about how to tell from the community what they wanted, what signals, because there was like a coin vote that went on, and there were Twitter polls, and there were Reddit threads, and all kinds of stuff that could indicate one way or another, but those can get um, those can get a lot of people from either the mining community or from the investor community that might go in and try to sabotage it or make fake accounts. So it's it's like, how do you cut through all that and see what the truth is and what the community actually wants? So after all of this, uh, we came to the conclusion that miners um, would be able to stay on the network if we did a reduction to 2 Ether. And as sort of a compromise, we were going to look into something called programmatic proof of work, which is an alternative to ET hash, uh, which is the current proof of work algorithm. And what that means is, if we were to switch to programmatic proof of work, there's a chance that it would kick the ASIC miners off the network. So right now, there's a debate going on besides the issuance reduction that involves about ASICs, about ASICs and about how miners mm-hmm. think that that's going to ruin the network or cause centralization or security issues. So they're saying, do like Monero did and kick them off the network. And we're saying, well, we don't know how big of a threat it is. Um, we don't have enough, you know, arguments either way to really assess the situation. But since it's been been some time and there's a new resurgence of people who are wanting that done, the miners pretty clearly said we care more about Prog POW, which is the shortened firm of programmatic POW, rather than the issuance reduction. So I would I would call it a compromise to an extent. Um, in that we really listened to the miners, we brought them to the table, unlike previous times, and we heard them out, and we reacted to that. So I think this was a victory in community consensus and dealing with rough consensus and the really hard issues around that. What was interesting in the core dev call is at least you managed to highlight a few voices that were clearly legit. Like, they are clearly, like, people who are actively doing either mining or investing or developing like these are voices that were sort of raised up and been like they are doing what they're doing and here's what they're actually saying because i think what you do see online is you see like something will come out somebody will say their opinion and you'll have a bunch of people who are you just don't know who they are exactly kind of jumping on in one direction or another 
And this was definitely like the highlighting of some voices. One of my strong points is knowing a lot of people, if that's considered a strong point. So because I've been in the community for a while, I know a lot of the developers. I've built relationships with different miners, large and small, and uh, different people from EthTrader and Ethereum subreddits, some Twitter folks, um, people who have been developing the core platform for a while, and even dApp developers. When you know a spectrum of people like that, you can always bring someone in with a diverse opinion, and that's always real important to do. I wanna, I wanna talk a little bit about the way this space operates because there's something about it that's quite different, which is why this meeting was kind of exceptional. So one of the things that's kind of unique is that there's a lot of stakeholders in a decentralized space where you don't know who they are. There's a lot of anonymity, and that's on purpose. There's a lot less tracking than any other industry that I've seen, like any tech industry. If you look at startup land, everything is tracked. And one of the things that I found super, like, actually super strange, but also kind of like, I don't know how I took it exactly. When I first entered into the space, and I would go like, so what are the metrics? Where where are the numbers? Da, da, da. And like, people wouldn't have them. And they wouldn't have them sometimes on purpose. I was like, that is so weird. That's like, how could you not want that? Don't you want that? Don't you always want all this information? But built into a little bit the spirit of the space is this privacy idea, the not tracking, the anonymity. So this, maybe just to give some context, is the space within which you're operating. It's very unique. It's very different, like you mentioned. And I I do think that privacy and respecting someone's privacy is very important, which is why we've had people on the core dev call that don't go by their real name. Um, They go by, I think for the uh, prog pow, if def and else were the code names for the three developers that participated in that particular call. And that's what we refer to them by. Um, There's also a few other people who are known to, you know, not have real names. I won't name them so that they don't get targeted. But if you're in the community long enough, you run into people where you realize after a while, like, that's not your real name on your passport. Like, you're, you're just, you're using a fake name just so that you don't get targeted one because you're in the space. Hmm. And that means so when you're trying to, like, identify miners or you're trying to identify, I don't know, like some of the investors, it would be hard. You, you actually have to, I mean, in your case, you already knew, you knew these people, you had had some interaction with them, you knew that they were like legit miners. But in general, like you, you don't have necessarily a clear picture into like, who all the miners are. Yeah, you really don't. A lot of them like to have privacy, uh, just because they would be a target by other miners, they found out their real name or where their operations were held Mm -hmm. or things like that. So that is definitely something that is very common amongst miners to try to obscure either their location, the location of their mining facilities, or their identity so that they're not targets. Is that the same for the devs? Some of the devs, yes. Um, not That's not as widespread with the devs, I'd say. And it's not even, I wouldn't call it widespread with miners. I'd call it definitely something that comes up, but not something that is incredibly common or widespread. With developers, I can probably think on, on the top of my head like five or ten people who go by fake names or different names or online handles only. So I wouldn't say that's widespread. I would say that that is going to happen in a community that values privacy as much as this one does. I want to talk a little bit more about how kind of the community works and how we understand the community, but I think it's important for people to understand that some of the challenges in this space are very much due to the fact that like the audience, the users, the stakeholders, they're not entirely defined. Like it's not like you pick up a phone and call like the mining association and that entity will distribute information to everybody or gather information from everybody and then give it to you. That doesn't exist. That does not exist. And it's lucky that we (laughs) have a blockchain that's completely open and transparent because the only data we can really gain is data and metadata from the blockchain that's compiled into graphs and charts um, in places like Etherscan. And uh, Google even opened up um, a data analytics um, 
I guess, API and platform using Ethereum recently, which I found really surprising. What? Yeah, it's, it, it can make really cool, like, f- fun, colorful charts and of, like, transactions that have happened recently. Amber Data is another really good one. It's an interesting duality that we can get so much information from a system that everyone uses and puts their information and trust in. And then when it comes to their actual real-life identity and it's not technology, you 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 don't have as much information. Given that setup, given this landscape of like a lot of stakeholders where you don't have super clear details about them, would you say that that is part of the challenge in trying to gauge opinion? Yeah, absolutely. There's a level of apathy in certain topics that a lot of the devs either don't research or it's not their area of expertise. Things get really down in the weeds and this is actually even outside of the core dev meetings. Like this can be someone writing an ERC that's just overly complicated. There might be just a handful of people in the ecosystem who can appropriately comment on it and make an assessment. So the same goes for, like I mentioned, core dev calls and ERCs. But with core dev calls, generally um, what happens is I'll say, okay, what's everyone's opinion on this? And if no one says anything, I table it to the next meeting and tell everyone to look it up. Or if it's something more simple, something that I can understand, I suggest what I think is the consensus, um, which is actually really terrible. That's like that's like um, consensus by Hudson, which is like a <laughs> terrible way to move forward. Uh, but some of the time, there's just so much um, stagnation that something has to kind of keep it going. But really, I mean, it's happening less and less because people are getting less shy. But I totally understand and sympathize with the developers not wanting to speak up, especially about controversial topics, because they'll get berated on Twitter or they'll, you know, they don't like, they're maybe shy or just want to work on the technology and don't want to deal with things like issuance reduction. So people staying quiet, I definitely don't blame them, but um, the show has to go on. And this is one of the challenges, I guess, that you face. The end of the meeting should be some sort of consensus between the people on the call to just say, yes, we agree to do these EIPs. We will shelve these ones. We will reject these ones. You're looking for answers from this group. Yes, the goal of the meeting is definitely to come to consensus on everything that's on the agenda, uh, regardless of what those decisions are. However, um, when that doesn't happen, it usually gets pushed off to next week, or we drop it entirely in rare circumstances. Um, For example, there was an EIP that um, we were having a lot of problems with because it was hard to implement, in addition to the fact that we were having trouble completely pinning down where it was best used or who would benefit most from it and if it was really worth our time to implement it in the first place. And we spent five to eight dev meetings like talking about it a little bit and then pushing it to the side, talking about it and pushing it to the side until it turned out it was too late to put it into Constantinople. So we just said, all right, it's not going in. If we want to put it in the future, someone can champion that. But it can't go in because we took too long dis- discussing it. Do you think that's a problem? Or is that just sort of a feature? I'd say it's more of a feature. There's going to be situations like that. And if there weren't, then I I would actually be a little nervous that that we're actually doing that well or figuring stuff out and thinking like, why are people having such strong opinions all the time? Because there has to be some things that you don't have opinions on or that you can't come to a resolution easy about. It would be surreal if we could. Is there a downside to not being able to make those decisions quickly? Or do you, cause, and, and I actually think that this might be true, that maybe it's really important not to make decisions quickly. I, I think it's both actually. I think it's important to not make decisions quickly because otherwise you don't have a full, like, time period to debate the topic at hand. Uh, we made that mistake at the first issuance reduction from 5 ETH to 3 ETH where we only discussed it over, like, two meetings with very limited community feedback and no minor feedback hardly. Uh, so we went ahead with that and then there was some backlash, which, you know, is correct to have. Uh, because of that. So that was an instance where we needed more time. Um, there's also instances where, yeah, we kick the can down the road. And when we do that, uh, there could be negative effects on the ecosystem because 
something that was ideal for it or that could have been ideal for the ecosystem and really helped it doesn't get put in place, not even because of disagreement, but because of not being able to come to consensus, which I feel is different than disagreement because disagreement is when one person's against something, another person is not against something. But with not coming to consensus, it could be apathy. It could be something where there's someone saying over my dead body versus someone saying, oh, I don't really care that much. So it's very, it's much more nuanced. I feel like you see this almost in every group. Here in Germany, you have this thing called Vereins, which are like community projects. I was in a garden Verein at one point. And like decision making, the problem is like participation. There's sometimes like people who really care about things. And then there's just a lot of people who don't care at all. Like, I guess ideally you want everyone to be sort of engaged and everyone to have stake. I mean, in a way, that's the whole thing with crypto. Like you have a token which should make you give a shit. <laughs> Yep, yep, absolutely. <laughs> right? That's like the whole point, but I guess it doesn't always work that way. Um, right now, what I hear is there's a process that works pretty well. A lot of the EIPs are non-contentious and just sort of go through either to be accepted, rejected. Some of them are a little bit contentious. They stay in the loop a couple times. And then there's a couple that I guess are very contentious and are problematic. How are you dealing with that last group? The ones that are contentious and problematic, um, those are the ones that I keep out of the meeting for as long as I can um, if they are community contentious. Uh, so to separate the two, if it's something like the Ether issuance reduction, that's something most people can understand. Um, so that's something that the community can have a say in and the community can decide on to an extent and you know voice their opinion. Other things like core developer EIPs that are a little bit more technical, down in the weeds, it's not going to be something that the community should decide on because it's not something that can be easily understood and it's not something that is going to directly affect them or the security of the network in ways people can understand. So how those are dealt with uh, when it comes to a community decision, I keep it out as long as I can and then bring in all of the perspectives into the core dev call or make them available by either bringing in guests or uh, getting blog articles and linking to them in the core dev chat or other ways to get all the core devs up to date on the information. So that's community. And when it comes to a core dev issue that is contentious, we basically just try to hash it out uh, using rough consensus. Uh, what rough consensus is, is basically not deciding like a vote. It's not voting. It's not who wants this and who doesn't want this. It's basically, is it technically sound? And is anyone so vehemently against this that they'd say something like, over my dead body, is this going to go into the protocol? Or someone very, very pro that EIP where they're like, I'll leave if this doesn't get implemented. And somewhere in between that is rough consensus where you have people who believe in it kind of strongly, very strongly, people who disagree with it kind of disagree, very much disagree. And then we go back and forth until the technical considerations are, are worked out. The good news about core protocol EIPs is that generally if there is a disagreement, it's on a technical issue, and so it's very black and white. It's not something that's like an economic discussion that's very theoretical, like issuance reduction, like knowing, you know, how is that going to affect the security of the network? No one knows. But something like, oh, what are we going to name this uh, hash function instead of SHA-3? Are we going to change it to KEKAC? Like, that's something that you can decide, and if someone disagrees, you can come to a compromise much more easily. How important is the community? Maybe not on the hyper-technical, but those less technical issues. It is vital. Um, the reason being the core developers like to get heads down and code and not deal with that crap. So really, it's the community who needs to decide. And that's how it should be in blockchain projects that have these decentralized um, ecosystems. So as much as we can, we try to gauge community sentiment and figure out you know, what signals are being given off and which ones are going to be polluted a little bit by trolls and by people who want to push their agenda and then other ones that are more clean and from people that you can trust and that you can invite onto calls to give their perspective in a clear and concise way. Why Why is the community important? 
The community is important because they're the ones who are ultimately using the platform. They're the ones who are ultimately making this go forward. You can't have a blockchain platform without a strong community. Otherwise, it's not used. It's That's where the user base comes from. They're just integral. They're like the heart of the whole thing. We were speaking to Matt DeFrento a few weeks ago, and... Um... He proposed this sort of like idea of a technocratic group, a group of people who would make decisions. And it sounded like that wouldn't be a a group that would necessarily listen to the community or that they would listen to them in a specific way. Have you explored any of those ideas? Do you know about this? I have not explored technocratic um, governance models personally, but um, it sounds interesting and it sounds, it actually sounds eerily similar to what we're defaulting with now where we listen to the community, but the community can't decide because we don't have a real way to like definitively gauge their sentiments, so we make the decision, because that's the best we have. You sort of just hinted at, at signals that you were picking up from the community, and I'm curious to hear a little bit more about what those are. Like When you say that, like how, how do you gauge what the community actually is saying? Gauging sentiment is incredibly hard, <laughs> and uh, the, the places that you can gauge sentiment from in the Ethereum community are Twitter, Reddit, chat rooms uh, on Riot, and Telegram, and Gitter, and Skype, all kinds of places like that. Blog articles that are shared and promoted on these social media platforms have comments in them and are generally also good ways to get overviews of sentiment from people in the community that you can trust and who have clear visions of what their side is trying to say. So that's generally where I get my signals from, are social media articles and uh, chat rooms. Are you concerned about the gameability of some of these maybe sources of information or any of these voting systems or any of these things that have sort of been emerging as like ways to gauge uh, community sentiment? Absolutely. Um, There's a bunch of what I would call game theory on the topic of signaling systems and gathering community consensus And it's very, very easy to game the system, I would say. At least that's what I've heard from people who are much smarter than me, and I believe them, Mm -hmm. uh, that it's very, very easy. And I can see where it would be easy. You can, you know, from anything that as explicit as paying people off to something more subtle and nuanced, like just making, you know, like your argument louder than the other person's argument and trying to use big words to sound smarter. Whenever I'm trying to get perspectives, I try to talk one-on-one with the people who are on the front lines of having that perspective, which is what happened with the issuance reduction talk. So that's always the way you want to go. Sometimes you don't have the time or the resources or know the people, but um, whenever there is especially a contentious issue, uh, that's what you want to do. Do you think there's a bit of a concern that this is going to be at some point overwhelming? Absolutely. And I've thought about ways to solve this. Um, not just because it's overwhelming for me, but this, the inflammation flow is overwhelming for the community. There's so many sources now. It used to just be everyone would talk on Reddit, core devs, non-core devs, investors, miners, everybody would just talk on Reddit when we were smaller. But now there's so many more platforms and so many more voices, and a lot of them are louder, and it's hard to sift through all that. So uh, coming up with people who can go through and sift through that and then come back with results is always good. Shout out to Offrey from the Parity team and Lane Reddig from the Ewasm team, because they do a lot of that. And some of the time when I'm wanting an opinion on what the community thinks, I go to them and I say, hey, what's the sentiment? Or sometimes I'll go to some of the Reddit moderators like Taylor Monahan and just say, what's what's going on with this particular topic? And um, that comes back to you know having to trust people. And it's not a perfect solution. I don't want for a minute for anyone to think that I really think this is ideal, but it's the way that it has to go right now because we don't have good methods to do proper signaling systems right now. Yeah, it's interesting. I have, I mean, I have a similar group myself. I mean, I have some key people that I will often, if a piece of information comes my way or if I have questions, there's a couple of people that I'll ask first to see if they have any insight see what what they're reading on the topic. I try to definitely get some people from different perspectives, also people who have a tendency to disagree with me. I'll always check in with them. But there's a huge learning curve, I feel. That's like what you just described and like having these trusted parties. That's years of 
relationship building that that would take. And it's valuable, definitely. But I do wonder as there's more and more people entering into the space, like, will that be something sustainable? Absolutely not. Uh, there's going to be all of these loud voices that are, you know, huge troughs of misinformation. And there's going to be different competing information aggregates, whether that be a software, a website, a person, someone who's blogging. And that's just going to be a challenge. Um, people are trying to solve the fake news problem. As I see it, basically, the people who like to perpetuate rumors or like to frame things in ways that are inaccurate about the Ethereum ecosystem or how certain EIPs are going or what the community thinks. And all of that is bad news. But there is some hope that if enough of the people who are in the community right now shape people who are coming in, just kind of have a precedent of somewhat professionalism while still being a little bit, um, you know, fun and uh, practical like we already are. I think there's some very key features of the community that as long as we keep up with them ourselves, then that can kind of spread to the people coming in who are new. Interesting. So do you, is there some sort of like onboarding that you imagine? Like, what would you say to somebody who's like an amazing dev, they're building some really cool stuff, but they've not been paying any attention to any of this stuff. And now they need to make a decision. So for general Ethereum stuff, I point them to Reddit and say, don't take everything there as truth, but go to the very top of the page and Offrey posted a link to getting started with Ethereum. It's a Reddit thread with a bunch of links. That's a good place to start. If they're in a specific industry or if they have a specific skill set or they have a specific interest, I send them an article that's related to their interest and say, this is how you're going to understand it the most. Because generally people asking me, I already know who they are. Uh, they're not strangers. So, Or if they are, uh, they're acquaintances and I at least know a little bit about them or their level of technical expertise. So I just kind of save up these articles that I can point people in the right direction to. Well, I think we've covered a ton of ground. I have sort of one last question. And that's like, Given that you are hosting these meetings, that you you are the coordinator in a decentralized space, what do you what's on your wish list? What do you kind of wish existed or want to happen to help make your life better and to make those decisions even better? So my wish list right now is someone who wants to help do the meetings with me. That actually got completed recently because Lane Reddick has been helping. Oh, um, cool. However, he obviously can't always be there. I obviously can't always be there. And I realized recently that for at least a year and like two months, I had done the meeting every two weeks without stop. So like, I was like, that's actually not sustainable. So wow. luckily I found Lane um, and got to know him and build a relationship and he helped cover for the meetings I can't attend. But we need more than that. We need people besides me and Lane to facilitate those meetings and to start other meetings in the community around some things like ERCs. What if there was an ERC call that someone did to discuss prominent ERCs in the community? I think that would be a great idea. So my wish list is more people getting involved uh, either directly with the core developer meetings if they have that skill set or making their own meetings meetings or facilitating an aggregate system of uh, information that they keep up with and spread out to people like Evan's Week in Ethereum blog. People need to stop being dumb and angry and mean to people. That's another one. And uh, that, that, that kind of sums it up. I want more people to get involved and people to stop being angry. Cool. Well, I want to say thanks for being on this podcast. Thanks for having and me. Thank you for your work. Uh, I actually listened to that 30 person call and it was a feat of people management and meeting management. And I really want to, I want to tip my hat to you because, uh, I saw that and I was, I thought it was really great. And I think it's so important, the work that you're doing. I really so appreciate it. Keep it up. And, um, yeah, to our listeners, thanks for listening. <laughs>